0: Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. And welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Allison Sayas, a gynecologic oncologist, about health literacy. So fun backstory, Allison and I actually went to high school and played tennis together, so it was really exciting to be reconnecting after all of these years to talk about something that we both feel passionately about. We also wanted to remind our listeners that you can find our newly redesigned show notes on our Patreon page by becoming a patron and supporter of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Podcast by going to our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com and click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Also, if you missed our big news, nurses can now earn CE for listening to the Woman Centered Health Podcast. So just check out mycehq.com or download the CEHQ app. Or you can go to our website and we have a button right on our front page that says, Get CE for listening to podcast. So hi, Allison.
1: Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. I'm so excited to talk to one of Nicole's former high school buddies. (laughs) I think that's so awesome. So the first question we always ask our guests is if you can share with our listeners a little bit of details about your background.
2: Definitely. I first want to say thanks to both Nicole and Stephanie for inviting me to speak to your listeners today. It's been really fun to reconnect and see how we share common interests so many years after our high school tennis days. I am like Nicole originally from Northwest Wisconsin. I was exposed to women's health care at an early age. Um, My mom was actually a pelvic floor physical therapist. I studied biology and French at the University of Wisconsin and spent a year abroad in a gap year where I taught English in the south of France during the academic year and then volunteered at a hospital in Tanzania before returning to Madison to attend medical school at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I chose to go into OBGYN and my husband and I couples matched for residency out in California at UC Davis where I completed my OBGYN residency back in 2019. I'm currently a gynecologic oncology fellow at Northwestern University, and that means that I take care of patients with gynecologic cancer, so cancer of the ovaries and fallopian tubes, the uterus, cervix, vagina, and vulva. I both operate for these cancers and give patients chemotherapy for their treatment.
1: Well, awesome work that you're doing. And the other question that we always like to ask all of our guests is, what informs your perspective? In other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you?
2: Yeah, I'm in the field that I'm in and do what I do because I love taking care of patients. The longitudinal relationship that I have with patient, the patients I take care of is really special And when I first meet patients, many times they don't even have a diagnosis yet, and I talk through the different management options. Being their surgeon and then also providing chemotherapy is a really interesting and challenging time period to navigate. And then I have the two different sides of continued follow-up. Some patients we've cured with their treatment, and then some patients end up having their cancer come back, and I care through them through the time period of making decisions about stopping treatment and transitioning to hospice and or end-of-life care. I used to have people tell me all the time that I was too nice to be a cancer doctor, but I think if someone you loved had cancer, wouldn't you want their doctor to be nice during a challenging time? Uh, So outside of direct patient care, I have a particular interest in advocacy and healthcare policy, and I like to speak up on behalf of my patients on the local and national level. I feel strongly that healthcare providers should play a role in determining the ways we care for our patients and I'm one of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology SGO congressional ambassadors and also a member of the legislative and affairs subcommittee.
0: First, how did I not know your mom was a public floor physical therapist? That's awesome. You just said she was a physical therapist. So <laughs> I did not know that specific. Yeah. We love pelvic floor physical therapists here. As everyone should. Yes. Everyone should probably have one too. <laughs> I also
2: agree with that. I'm clearly very biased on the, the fields, but uh, it was really cool. And I certainly have some of the earliest memories of mine in Thinking about women's health of my mom going through all like slide reel presentations where, you know, it's that physical thing that actually rotates and turns and like displays a slide up on the roll wall, which I guess dates me at this point. Many of our listeners probably haven't ever seen one of those uh, pieces of equipment. But yeah, it was like vagina, like vulva, like, you know, going through these different things. So definitely had uh, more exposure to women's health care than a lot of people growing up.
0: Yeah, I love that. All right, so like we said today, we're going to talk health literacy, so let's jump right in. Let's start out broadly, and likely many of our listeners are already aware of this concept, but as a refresher, can you share with us what is health literacy? Health
2: literacy is defined as the degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain, process, and understand basic health information and services that they need to make appropriate health decisions. There are multiple factors that affect a patient's understanding of health information, which can include cultural factors, a physician's health knowledge and communication skills, the demands of the situation, the environment in which the health information is being conveyed, and of course, time constraints. The responsibility for recognizing and addressing the problem of limited health literacy lies with everyone in the healthcare system, from primary care physicians to community-based or public health organizations. We'll get into it a little bit more, but because of the potential effect of health literacy on patient outcomes, uh, healthcare providers in general should take appropriate steps to ensure they communicate in an understandable manner so that patients can make informed decisions about their healthcare. There's three different components of health literacy. The first is print literacy, so things that are writing and reading. The second is oral literacy, so listening and speaking. And then the third is numeracy, using and understanding numbers. And looking at the combination of those three, over one-third of all the people in the United States have significant difficulty understanding health information.
1: Awesome. Thank you for that background. So, You have a really interesting background that you mentioned, and you shared with us how much your time in Tanzania and being a French double major informed how you approach communication with your patients. Can you share with our listeners more about how your background has informed how you approach communication and health literacy?
2: In the small town where I lived in France, I was the only native English speaker I also had friends from all over Europe, and communicating in a foreign language with people who also didn't speak that language as their first language was a really valuable skill that I developed. I think it changed a lot about the ways in which I communicate with patients, because in many ways, I feel like medicine is a foreign language that our patients don't speak. I had the experience of saying things one way and having that not be understood, so triaging and coming up with multiple different ways to troubleshoot sharing the same information.
0: Okay, so from your perspective, in what ways does general health literacy differ from women's health health literacy?
2: I think sexual and reproductive health and knowledge about the female pelvic organs is a really specialized area of medicine. Individuals may have good health literacy about other topics, for example, understanding things like diabetes management or taking medications to manage high blood pressure, but may not understand information about abnormal uterine bleeding or screening for gynecologic cancers. Some of this has to do with education provided through our public school systems. Right now, there's only 26 states and D.C. that mandate both sex education and HIV education. And looking at some examples, there was a 2021 study done in the U.K. where they asked patients to identify female anatomy, and less than 10% of people were able to correctly identify the nine major structures. Less than one-half of the people knew that there were three different orifices for anybody just clarifying, that's the urethra, the vagina, and the anus. I think another example is some of the specialized language in the field of medicine. So the word hysterectomy, for example, in my field, when a surgeon talks about the concept of a total hysterectomy, to me that means taking out the uterus and the cervix. It doesn't have anything to do with the ovaries. A supracervical hysterectomy means taking out just the uterus and not the cervix. But a lot of people both in and out of the field of medicine use the term partial hysterectomy, meaning the ovaries are left behind. So patients can be really confused about this because in their mind, part of the uterus was left behind. There was a study a couple of years ago in 2019 where researchers called patients who were scheduled for hysterectomy and asked patients what surgery they were having and what organs they were having removed. Of the patients who said they were having a total hysterectomy, only two-thirds of them said that their cervix would be removed. So 79 of the 456 patients that were booked for a total hysterectomy said that they didn't even know what surgery they were having. And these were patients, again, who had been seen in the office for their problems, counseled about their options, and booked for surgery. So in theory, we're supposed to have understood all of these concepts. I think even some of the language that includes regular words can be understanding. I think about the word negative in healthcare, for example, While negative in most situations is a bad or a negative connotation, test results being negative can be a good or a normal thing, and a positive result can mean that something's wrong or worrisome. Sometimes this can be really hard for patients to wrap their head around. I really think that anyone who takes care of people with uteruses has had experience of patients not understanding what previously has been done to their body. When I used to work on labor and delivery, I saw this all the time. Patients didn't understand why they had prior surgeries or what had been removed. After I gave this talk on this topic at Northwestern, one of my colleagues reached out later to say later that day that she saw a patient in the emergency department who had an unplanned pregnancy. A year ago, she had had a dilation and curatage, a DNC, and she thought it was a hysterectomy. So she didn't think she could get pregnant because she didn't think she had a uterus. So hence, she hadn't been using birth control. And I think that that you know, just provide some examples of how women's health literacy is different than this whole topic of general health literacy.
1: Yeah. And I know personally, you know, these things, but having conversations with women about a hysterectomy, and you're trying to figure out, like, did you get your ovaries removed with that or not? Like, because you're trying to figure out, did they go through menopause or no, or... And a lot of the times they don't even know like, well, I don't know if I got my ovaries removed. And so you kind of have to go back through their charts and and figure those things out, which is puts a big time crunch on people. But also like the patient doesn't know what body parts they have or don't have anymore, which I, I think is just kind of sad that things are different with our body and we don't know.
2: You hit on a great topic there. I think the idea that patients don't know what body parts they have. I feel like a lot of the conversations I have start with assessing like the base level of patient's understanding and explaining like, what the uterus is, what the cervix is, what the fallopian tubes or ovaries are, because I think sometimes patients don't even have that level of understanding when they're initially having discussions and you have to figure out where someone is at in their initial knowledge to be able to convey or communicate the information about what you're recommending.
0: Let's let's go down that road for a minute. Can <laughs> you share with our listeners maybe how you frame those questions and what kind of questions you ask to get at your starting point?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, a lot of times I ask initially just like what do you understand what the diagnosis was that brought you into my office today? And sometimes even that is not what patient's impression is, is not actually what the referring diagnosis was or what someone was sent to me for. And then sometimes they'll say things like, my pap test wasn't normal. So a pap test is a specific kind of test that's a cervical cancer screening test, right? It's a scraping of like the outside. of a few cells from the surface of the cervix, and it screens for cervix cancer. It's not the same thing as a speculum exam, just looking inside the vagina and looking at the cervix, and it's not doing the exam and feeling the cervix and the uterus. Sometimes patients will have it a biopsy that was done, and so it's like something where it's like a biopsy called an endometrial biopsy that's a biopsy inside the uterus, and figuring out what patients understand about the previous procedure that was done and what the diagnosis was, I think helps me frame where to start the conversation. Sometimes they sort of understand things. And I think a good example is a patient that I saw yesterday in the clinic. She had a precancer of the uterus or complex atypical hyperplasia, sometimes also called Endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. So, this diagnosis, she didn't understand if she had a precancer or she had cancer. And that's further made complex by the fact that 40% of the patients who have precancer actually have cancer. So, the treatment that we recommend is more similar to what's recommended for endometrial cancer. And I think that investigating what patients' initial understanding helps me figure out how to communicate with them. If they don't understand anything about what's been done previously, then I try to explain not just what I'm recommending as far as next steps, but what led them to me and what their current diagnosis is and why they would need additional treatment or additional procedures.
1: So I'm looking at the questions and I wish I would have added this. So if you can't answer it, I totally understand, but I want to ask it anyway. So obviously, like what we're talking about here, health literacy is really important so patients know what their treatment is or know what their diagnosis means or just know their body in general. Do you know kind of going down that rabbit hole like what the research shows about the outcomes with people who have lower health literacy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. By and large, it demonstrates that people who have lower health literacy have worse health care outcomes, regardless, even when you correct for other sociodemographic factors. So correcting things that are like age or a patient's income level, looking at ethnic background, race, any of those sorts of things that are thought of as additional like potential factors that could contribute. Into patients' understanding of what their care is, that actually, even if you take all of those out of the fields, then patients who have poor health literacy have worse health outcomes. I'm trying to see if I can bring up. I had some information here that I can pull for you. So AHRQ, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, does some of the specific research on the effects of healthcare literacy in healthcare. So. That some of their uh, information, there was a systemic review that was done about a decade ago at this point, but they included 96 studies and 111 articles, 98 articles on health literacy, 22 on numeracy, and nine that included both health literacy and numeracy. And low health literacy is consistently associated with more hospitalizations, greater use of emergency care, lower receipt of preventative screening like mammography and getting the flu vaccine, poorer ability to demonstrate taking medications appropriately, poorer ability to interpret labels and health messages, and poorer overall health status and higher mortality rates even after controlling for sociodemographic variables.
0: That's a big deal. We need to take a minute and just let that soak in. Like folks are having poor health outcomes not because they there's something biologically wrong with them right like it's not because they have cancer and that's why they have poor health outcomes like this is this is outside stuff these are things that clinicians can absolutely influence but it's kind of like when we talk about racism again it's not because black women just can't have babies and that's why they have poor maternal health outcomes because there's just something deficient with them it's because of racism which is again is something outside that healthcare clinicians play a huge massive role in all of it they they're the role right and so again you have these two pieces that are really critically impacting folks that has nothing to do with the person like their body itself yeah, their health outcomes are
2: not because they live in a food desert they're not because they don't have access to a healthcare facility it's specifically the lack of understanding of healthcare
0: information yeah that's huge
1: you uh hit on another term that i just wanted to go over and something that i've studied in in my research life but numeracy can you explain to our listeners what that is
2: yeah. So, you know, again, this goes back that some of these things are hard to understand. And some of it is specifically thinking about a dose, right? Like looking at information, like take eight milligrams or something like that. But more commonly, I think about it, especially in the shared decision-making and the communication that's happening between a patient and their healthcare provider and giving examples. So I mentioned a few moments ago, this idea that in pre-cancer, that for an EIN diagnosis, of pre-cancer of the uterus, that 40% of those patients already have a cancer at the time that they have that pre-cancer biopsy. Some people don't understand that concept of 40%, right? If I then say that's 40 people in 100 people, or that's four in 10 people, or that's less than half of people, those are all interpreted in different fashions and patients have a tough time conceptualizing specifics around numbers.
0: And I want to loop in, I think this is a good time to also loop in something you had said to us over the phone, Allison, and that when you're changing your communication, it's not necessarily dumbing it down. Like health literacy Mm -hmm. isn't about dumbing it down. So I was wondering if you could share, you know, we had the pleasure of hearing you talk about that. If you could share with our listeners that conversation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes about healthcare literacy comes from a book that's written by Joe Klein. It's called The 60-Minute Guide to Healthcare Literacy. And the quote is, for effective patient communication, you don't need to use small words. Simply take a moment to explain what the big words mean. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do something that is different. Say, for example, I'll say something like, this will mean removing the uterus. Another word for the uterus is the womb. So people might understand and saying something like this is where pregnancies grow or babies grow. Those are all different ways, kind of going back to what I was discussing in terms of different ways to say the exact same thing. I'm sharing that same information, but I'm explaining it and making sure that I'm using multiple different, potentially more well-understood terms or terminology for that patient to then wrap their head around. So when I use the word hysterectomy, then going forward, or I talk about removing the uterus, we're all on the same page with what is coming out at the time of surgery.
1: Yeah, so you're like educating them, you know, for their own communication with future healthcare professionals. It's
2: worth taking the time to do that because it also helps and it helps inform future conversations, right? If you put up the time up front, it's like thinking about my background in public health and thinking about preventative health. If you work upstream of the problem, if upstream at the very start, you explain the concept and what's happening and what's going on and make sure that you're all on the same page, then as you move downstream, you can build upon that knowledge. As you're talking about adding additional treatment or changing treatment, if they understand what Initial diagnosis was and what the treatment was, then they'll be able to better understand why there's a need for a change or why there's a need to add something else. And so, basically, I think this just allows this gives patients the autonomy to be able to the tools that they need to make decisions about what's going on with their body and to understand what's going on in their own healthcare.
0: Well, the tools are also empowering, right? That
2: absolutely you
0: get it, or, or not necessarily that you get it, but that you understand. And there's a lot to be said there.
2: I totally agree.
1: So as like, a, if you're a clinician listening to this and you're like, how do I know if my patient has lower health literacy or like that I need to explain something a bit more?
2: I sort of hit on a little bit of that in asking, kind of starting or framing a situation around asking patients to tell me what brought them in to start with. But I think also some of this is sort of like early on using this teach back method, or if if someone else theoretically taught them what was happening, saying, what is your understanding of what's going on right now? And having someone, if you have someone who who comes in and says, okay, you know, I had an endometrial biopsy, it diagnosed that I have an endometrial cancer, I understand that you're going to recommend surgery that's going to include a hysterectomy, that patient is demonstrating to me that she's understood what has happened thus far and is also already at the point where she's anticipating next potential steps. Whereas if I ask that and say, you know, what's your understanding thus far? And all that it is, is they said I had cancer. Then I start at at a more basic level, kind of explaining how the diagnosis was performed and then also where you know where the cancer is and what the best ways that we treat that cancer are.
0: All I can hear in the back of my mind, and Stephanie will appreciate this, is in our nursing theory class, it was always define your concepts, define your concepts, define your concepts. And so I think what you're getting at is, yeah, asking them, how, how do you understand this? How do you define this? And what does this mean to you? And, and I think that goes to you even beyond, you know, you're in a real specialty area, but even just asking, like, when you use the word sex, what does that mean? Because that can even mean a lot of different things to different folks. And so, and I think as clinicians, we're really good at taking that stuff for granted. And we assume that people know what something means. And, and so really taking a moment to take that step back and assess for understandings is critical
1: the other thing I've noticed and I don't know you know what the research is backing this up I might have an idea but I've noticed even like my friends very educated probably have a master's degree or higher I know my one friend until his wife had a baby he had no idea that a urethra and a vagina were two totally separate so he was married for years and like I said, very educated person, but didn't know those body parts. So I don't know if you can speak to like, does health literacy really go with education or um, just kind of regular literacy or how do those work together?
2: Yeah, so I think that you can't assume that someone who has a higher education level has a higher health literacy level. Many times those two things are correlated, but just like you're bringing up, not always. And conversely, you may have someone who went to a relatively small amount of school or, you know, didn't graduate from high school, but if they've been dealing with a chronic health condition for a long time, they are true. They can truly be the experts in that. And sometimes know more than I do, or more than their providers know about a specific, like rare type of medical, you know, medical situation. And so the education level is not always the exact same thing as health literacy level. I think even among, you know, myself, my, my little brother's an ophthalmologist and I, remember very little about the eyeball from medical school. And so, you know, even though I'm also a doctor, that's an area completely out of my wheelhouse. So if something is going on there, then, you know, even though my level of health literacy is in theory higher than other people in some areas, there are areas in which I'm deficient also. So I think that it, it really is variable and that you can't assume that someone who has a higher level degree has a greater understanding, particularly with respect to this field. I think with respect to, again, like sexual and reproductive health, the knowledge in those fields, it stems back a lot of times from education in terms of thinking about what someone's background was in growing up. And I think that as a whole society, we're doing a much better job about talking about these topics that for people, even the generation above us was really taboo. The idea, for example, that someone would share openly about having a miscarriage was absolutely non-existent, you know, 20 years ago, whereas now I think a lot of people are posting and sharing. And I think it's really important. The New York Times had put out an article a couple of years ago that said it was the the most lonely experience that millions of women in the United States go through a year. And so it's, it's the idea that by by sharing things more openly, by being able to have other people to talk to and learn from, then some of that is improved in our social media age, but not necessarily. And some of that means you know, I think that about the public school system as being one of the first places that you learn about some of these sex ed things. And back where Nicole and I went to high school, um, you know, I remember in my middle school class, actually, one of the girls is now a family medicine physician and trained with me at the University of Wisconsin. And her mom demonstrated how to put on a female condom, like what a female condom was, and then had a model where she like demonstrated how to insert a female condom. And that I, I remember her just like wanting to die in the back row because her mom was sharing all this information and you know, we're in middle school or whatever. But, you know, I think that that was actually really progressive and forward to have something like that in such a rural, small town. I think there are a lot of areas, even in my class, like you could have opted out of health class. So there are people that I graduated with that went to school that didn't get any of that education because you didn't have to participate in that health care, that healthcare class. It wasn't mandatory.
0: For the record, I did not get that class. <laughs> 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 Were you opted out of that? (laughs) No, no, (laughs) I'm pretty sure my mom wasn't that on top of life. No, Uh (laughs) I wish I had that class.
2: Me too. Nicole's a year older and a year smarter than I am.
0: (laughs) No, I wouldn't. I'm, I'm a year oh, gotcha. older, but I am. <laughs> okay. I don't know about the year smarter, uh, you know. And it's funny when you talk. And I think this loops back to our original question, right? Between what's the difference between women's health, health literacy, and health literacy? And it's funny because you know, my, so my husband's a dentist. So if I say dental dam, that means two very different things to us. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there's only one place that goes for him and I think of the other place (laughs) one hole in the other (laughs) yes (laughs) again important to have appropriate communication (laughs) and make sure that both
2: parties understand what they're talking about and on the same page
0: well I really uh, oh go ahead ahead. I was just going to say you know in this kind of It's hard to also talk about this because, Allison, you've mentioned this with school to not mention politics and policy and the role that this has, because in Iowa, we have some and have had some, we'll just call it interesting legislation. And one of those things was that, well, women can, you know, when they were talking about shutting down abortion clinics and they were talking about all the other places that uh, women could talk to about you know, women's health stuff. And one of them was dentists. And I had to laugh when I saw that because I'm thinking of my husband and that's the last thing he's going to talk about a patient. And again, it kind of circled back to that. There's only one dental dam that exists for him. And that's the one that goes in the mouth. And so, yeah, again, you, you can't, you can't ignore policy. Also, it's tied to high health literacy, right? But just not in the
2: same area, right? So. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that I was, that's what I was going to comment on is just I appreciate your comments about comparing OB-GYN to ophthalmology and you're a physician, but you're not going to necessarily know all these things about eyes. I know like personally, sometimes I'll go into a healthcare situation for myself and I won't. Disclose that I'm a nurse, or because I want—I don't want. Sometimes that carries like assumptions, like the provider might think, "Oh, I, oh, she knows about this stuff." So I'm not going to explain it as what as much as I would to a person who is not in healthcare. But sometimes I want those explanations, because especially like with kids stuff, because I don't know very much about pediatrics. So I like that explaining so I think it can kind of go both ways like you can kind of ex you know explain things to people even when they are in the healthcare profession
2: yeah I've had that same experience both as a patient and then I think as a you know having people say like I'm sure you understand this and so then it sort of makes you feel less comfortable sharing that you don't understand something so I actually, purposely avoid that. And I never assume that someone, even if someone's coming who's coming to me is a physician or a nurse or, you know, a, a tech or has some sort of medical background and is working in the same healthcare facility. I say, I give the same spiel to everyone. If there's something that you feel like you don't want me to talk more about, or you want me to move on to the next topic, just let me know. But I speak to all of my patients in essentially the same fashion, because I think that for everyone, it's important to make sure that we don't assume that they are coming in knowing everything. Because even if, in theory, even if you do know all of those things, If someone were a gynecologic oncologist and they came in and they had a gynecologic cancer, sometimes it's harder to hear those things. It's a stressful environment. There's a a lot happening. You're overwhelmed. And the fact that something is stressful, there's great research that demonstrates that people take in less and understand less if the overall and like Physical environment is a more stressful one, or they're in a situation where they are feel like they're short on time, or feel like they they have to keep moving on. Then they're less able to focus on what's being shared.
1: Do you see any uh, overlap? I know, like in the news, is obviously a lot about vaccine hesitancy, especially with COVID uh, vaccination. Do you see like kind of this issue of health literacy? Is it? as it pertains to COVID vaccinations.
2: Yeah, I think that it's It's very interesting, people who choose to get vaccinated and then people who are choosing to not get vaccinated, the rationales that both of those groups, those groups of people are sharing for coming up with making those decisions. And this really comes back to figuring out how people make decisions about their health care and what resources that they're using to inform or to, to decide on those things and their health literacy right their background in this and their understanding of what a vaccine is how a vaccine works because a lot of the the frankly disinformation it's not even misinformation disinformation is information that's being shared to purposely mislead the individual who's receiving that information that disinformation that's out there you know targets people who don't understand that this is not something that changes your dna like it's all of these things that are being shared where people think like oh gosh like you know the government can implant a chip in my body or you know some of the like true conspiracy theories come from not a fundamental understanding of how the vaccines work but then i think the other part goes back in a more general fashion that because a lot of the communities and the populations that are choosing to not get vaccinated have an inherent mistrust or distrust of the medical community and that's because of racism and poor information things that have been done to healthcare communities, to individuals in the past that are completely not appropriate. If you had a family member and they didn't understand what they were consenting for and ended up having a procedure or a complication, and then they blamed the healthcare environment or the person who did that, then you're much less likely to be able to, you know, to have a subsequent family members or children and things like along those lines have trust in the healthcare community. So I think that Communicating and sharing and talking with patients about the whole picture and all the different potentials is a hugely important thing. And part of the reason that we have all this, the people who are choosing right now not to get vaccinated and the distrust in that is because of the history of poor communication and poor health literacy in the past
0: yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. There's a lot of good points. So we kind of went down like 37 different rabbit holes, <laughs> so, <laughs> we're not, which is very common, which is us. very common. I'm <laughs> um, to try and bring us back a little bit. So one topic that we discuss a lot on our podcast is consent. So what is the relationship between consent and health literacy?
2: Consent is so important and so closely tied to health literacy. I like to say that consent is a process and not just a document. It's a two-way discussion of the planned procedure or research study, the expected benefits for a patient, the possible risks, the likelihood of those risks, and then also alternative treatment plans. The term consent is often used interchangeably with getting a signature on a form, right? I'm going to get consent. Here's the consent. The characteristics of a well-designed consent form are well known. The document has to contain information. Some of that is can be statutorily defined, but it needs to be necessary to allow the participant to make informed decisions and be written at a reading level appropriate for its audience and be of a length that enables complete and thorough reading. So all of those things are closely tied to health literacy and whether the patient can understand things in order to consent to participate in a procedure or a study.
1: Yeah, I think I shared that it was like some old video Uh, on health literacy uh probably from the 90s or something that i watched and it was like a phd historian speaking about how she had a hysterectomy but had no idea what that word meant and Mm -hmm. but she had consented to the surgery had the surgery and then found out that meant her uterus had been removed in her post-surgery follow-up so obviously, like, in my mind, she really didn't consent to that surgery. They might have gotten that document, but she didn't know that that procedure, you know, she was going to have her uterus removed.
2: Yeah, the planned procedure was not fully explained or comprehended by the patients. Absolutely. I wish that were a rare story, and I'd like to think that that's less common in the current day and age, but, you know, there certainly are stories that are really hugely concerning, particularly with respect to hysterectomies or sterilizations that are as recent as in the last decade or two.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that. Like, how can clinicians advocate for their patients to Im- and improve health literacy in their own work?
2: I think the most important first step is to care about communicating well with your patients. You can ask what tools your institution has to improve health literacy, but it's really tailoring your speaking and listening skills to individual patients, speaking slowly and clearly, repeating vital information so it's not just at a single time, organizing information into two or three short components, and asking open-ended questions, so things like, what questions do you have? that do you have any questions we haven't really hit on this yet so i think one of the things that's just important to bring up that could be a whole other topic in and of itself is using medically trained interpreters Checking for comprehension by asking patients to out the health information in their own words is particularly important if it's in a different language. And it can take longer with an interpreter, which is challenging, but you know, building that time into the schedule to really allow for adequate communication because it's particularly important for patients who don't speak English as a primary language to understand what's going on. And if the physician doesn't speak that additional language as a primary as as one of their primary languages then making sure that you're sharing things and it's not like I just mentioned like short components where you're saying your diagnosis is x y or z and then having that be interpreted rather than sharing a whole paragraph of material and expecting a, um, a medical interpreter to remember everything that's been shared by the physician or healthcare provider. Encouraging staff and colleagues to use playing culturally sensitive language and obtaining training in improving communication with patients. And then one of the biggest things that I really love that's been super challenging with COVID-19 is an appointment buddy. So having someone come to a visit with a patient, having a family member or a friend, a child, a neighbor, someone who is present, who's going to take notes, who's going to ask additional questions, who's going to write down things and be able to help be an additional person communicating and helping to also remember information from a visit so that when that patient goes home and they're thinking, what, what was it that we talked about with this again? They can talk with the person who is present with them at the appointment and kind of bounce some of those things off that person and have their appointment buddy remember something that they didn't or vice versa.
0: Yeah, the appointment, buddy, you know, especially when you think about the line of work that you're in, Allison. I mean, I could only imagine if someone told me I had cancer. Well, there there goes everything. <laughs> you know, my ability to take yeah, in. Yeah, some his eyes kind of glaze
2: over. Exactly.
0: Yep. Like, that's a lot. Or I think about my father-in-law. When he goes to the doctor, someone has to go with him because he's only going to tell you what he wanted to hear <laughs> and yes. not necessarily what's wrong, but only the good stuff or you get it really diced up. So someone goes with, but I think a, an important point that maybe we should also throw in here is then you as a clinician, not just talking to the buddy and making yes. sure that you're not talking around the patient. I think that comes into play most commonly if it's a child,
2: who maybe speaks english more, more fluently than the patient uh, himself and and i would like to point out too that this doesn't have to be someone who's physically present i think sometimes you know we've gotten a lot better about telehealth and ways that we can incorporate other people in ways that you know a couple of years ago, we wouldn't have dreamed of. So even if it's just the patient in the room, calling in to have someone who wanted to be present, who can't physically be present for that appointment, allows that person to hear that information and to maybe not be quite as present as if that person were there physically in person, but to, to at least get to hear all the information that's being shared. And again, help to remember some of those key points or help to clarify something that is challenging to understand.
1: So obviously, time is a big issue for clinicians because we never have enough of it. So listening and educating patients takes a lot of time. So do you have any tips or tricks or thoughts uh, in regards to time and promoting health literacy?
2: Yeah, I've already talked about a few things, and I certainly can share a lot more about some of the guidelines and the written patient education material that we share with patients. But I think that you can make the time that you spend with patients more valuable without necessarily having to make it longer. Doing things like letting patients know what to expect for future steps and sharing information, written information with them in some cases can allow them to think ahead and learn more about what they'll be experiencing so they can come in and be ready to ask appropriate questions. You don't have to cover the entirety of the topic of whatever healthcare situation they're experiencing is from A to Z in a single visit. So I think about seeing a patient and establishing a relationship, making sure that they're comfortable with the information that sharing and providing and then making a plan for follow-up to say at your next visit this is what we'll be talking about so that they know what to anticipate and I really again I can't stress enough that I don't think that it's always that you necessarily have to spend more time if you're maximizing the time that you do have spending the time giving the patients the tools that they need to make appropriate decisions about their health care allows you to save time in the future because then you don't have to re-explain everything when they come back for a future visit.
0: We've had this conversation. I mean, we talk about time in a lot of our episodes and you had touched on this even earlier too, is sometimes, you know, even if it does take more time, that initial time investment can pay off in later appointments being shorter. So there's definitely a good return on investment, shall we say? Yeah, I'm working on setting up my
2: upcoming schedule. And, you know, you if you have some control over for the clinicians, In scheduling more time for a new patient visit as opposed to a return visit, I think is really key. And knowing that it will take a little bit longer in that upfront visits talking about things and then allowing to building it into the day that there's more time for those visits. And then again, if you've already put in that initial investment, then the return visits can take less time.
1: Well, and then that kind of leads into another question then. So, a lot of the times as clinicians, we'll use like posters or handouts or brochures for patient education materials so we can give some more education without spending that additional time. From a health literacy perspective, what makes a poster, a brochure, or that type of thing, a good material for health literacy?
2: So there are well-established guidelines as to readability levels that are recommended. They differ a little bit. The N.A.H. says that written materials that are provided for patients should be written at no more than a sixth-grade reading level, and the American Medical Association says no more than an eighth-grade reading level. But regardless of which one of those that you're following, much of the available patient-centered education materials that currently exist are written at a level health literacy well above either sixth or eighth grade. So making sure that you're checking the documents or the things that you're providing. And some of the kind of bullet points you thinking about it is, again, I'm still probably starting to sound a bit like a broken record, but keep the messages simple. Limit the number of messages and make sure that they're understandable. And focusing on action, so giving a specific recommendation based on behavior rather than medical principles. So saying something like, Take a warm water bath two times a day instead of sits baths may help healing. Using the active voice instead of the passive voice. So, saying like these pills can make you sick to your stomach instead of nausea may be caused by this medication, right? Like making that very clear. And using familiar language and avoiding jargon. So, you may have itching instead of you might experience pruritus. Visual aids are key as well. If there are things that can be used as pictures, that's great, particularly for, again, female anatomy. Like if there's a something that's on the vulva, we have pictures and demonstrate kind of where the lesion is or what you know what that is. I also have pictures of the female reproductive organs. So if we're planning to take out just ovaries or ovaries and the uterus and the cervix, then I, I circle all of the organs that will end up being removed. And then using at least a 12-point size font to make the messages easier to read rather than teeny tiny little things that you need bifocals for. And leaving plenty of white space around the margins in between sections so patients aren't overwhelmed by just like looking at the paper and seeing a pure block of text.
0: Yeah, that can be really overwhelming when they hand you information sheets and it's just all small text. Okay, so Allison, where can folks learn more about improving health literacy? Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of good information that's available online.
2: You can start by just Googling health literacy. I brought up one of the books that I liked that's guide, that's aimed more for patients than clinicians, but I think is helpful. It's called The 60-Minute Guide to Health Literacy, A Common Sense Approach to Informed Medical Decision Making. And then the Institute of Medicine has some good resources about health literacy and the prescription to end confusion that's available online, as well as the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion has a whole section on health literacy that talks about the the ways in which there are national plans to improve health literacy.
0: Oh, you know what, Allison, I'd like to ask you, do you have any personal favorite sources that you get maybe your handouts from or your information from that folks could access as well?
2: Yeah, it was interesting because as I brought up that we should have guidelines be sixth or eighth grade reading levels. I was actually a little bit disappointed because I queried our own, the the Foundation for Women's Cancer, that FWC is one of the web pages that I've liked a lot for educational materials and covering things for patients. But it does fall guilty in that it is, you know, studies have demonstrated that it's above this eighth grade reading level as high as up to the 13th grade uh, reading level. But it does have good diagrams and pictures. And I think it has, some good spring points, also talking about advocacy groups, and some other people who are doing important work in the field that can link to other sites and information.
1: All right. Well, Allison, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end?
2: I guess I'd just say that I'm always happy to speak more with people. Uh, listeners are welcome to contact me directly. Twitter is often easiest. I'm Allison Saya's MD. There, you can shoot me a DM. And just remembering takeaway points. I think many of our patients have limited health literacy and limited healthcare knowledge, particularly with respect to obstetrics and gynecology. But that communication with patients, both verbally and in print, can be optimized. It's just a learned skill and a dynamic process. So I'd encourage everyone who's listening to make sure that they're doing all that they can for themselves and for the people that they're taking care of to make sure that everyone's understanding what's going on with respect to their healthcare.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And if you're looking for Allison, her last name is spelled S-A-I-Z. That might not be very intuitive based on how you say it. So I just wanted to clarify that for our listeners who may want to find you on Twitter. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman Centered Health podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.